following is part of the teaching ministry of Harvest Bible Chapel in Barrie, Ontario. We believe firmly in proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology. Amen. Hey church, how are you doing? Good? Good to see you today. Ready to get into God's Word a little bit? I'll go back and sit over here if you're not. No, I won't. Um, hey, listen, just before we get going, though, a big Sunday down at uh, Harvest Bible Chapel in Oakville. Uh, the second harvest in Canada is celebrating their 10th anniversary this morning. So that's worth a little shout out and celebration. And God's been doing a great uh, work down there. And uh, God's using Pastor Robbie and his team down there in a pretty powerful and significant way. They are the lead church for uh, this region, and um, it's just great to see what the Lord is doing and will do in the coming days and years ahead. So great to be part of this family and this fellowship for sure. All right, let's, uh, are you ready to go? God's word, ready to go? All right, let's start with a reality check. Not everyone who thinks they're saved is actually saved. Not everyone who says they're saved, is actually saved. Now, when I say something like that, I, it, there's a, I get a little anxious because I understand there's always some people who, when I say something like that, there's some people who struggle naturally with their assurance of their salvation. And so when I say something like that, they, they start to really question their own salvation again. And the intent here in saying that and what the passage is going to drive at here today is not to create doubt on the part of those who kind of struggle with that a little bit. But my point and James's point is to create doubt in the minds of those who are so confident about their faith, their profession of faith, but can't produce any evidence to show us that it's really true, that they actually have any faith. And so I don't want to create doubt for those who lack assurance or who struggle with assurance. You're okay. You're okay in my books. Okay. What I do want to create from today's passage, though, is doubt in the hearts and minds of those who are just so confident. But you can't prove it. you got nothing at all to show for it. So let me ask all of us this question. Because this is what's going to help us kind of move through the text. What evidence can you show today that the faith that you have, the profession that you've made, is legit? What faith proofs can you demonstrate in your life? You see, a profession of faith is not equal to the possession of faith. A profession of faith is not equal to the possession of faith. Proof of profession confirms the possession. In other words, if I can show evidence, then I really have it. And I also maybe could even state it this way. I'm not taking your word for it that you have faith. And you shouldn't take my word for it. What we really need to see in each other's lives is clear evidence that we genuinely are people of faith. 
And in today's passage, James poses these two questions to start out the text. We're in James chapter 2, verse 14. We're going to read the whole passage in a few moments. But this is the point of the entire message. He asks these two questions to start. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not, but does not have works? What good is it if someone says they have faith but does not have works? Second question, can that faith save them? And the answer to the first question is, it's not at all good. What good is, is faith without work? It's not good at all. And can that faith save them? An emphatic, categorical, no, it can't. It's not saving faith. And so then this question becomes critical, and this is what's going to help us move through the text. What kind of faith does actually save us? I think we all would want to know the answer to that question, don't you think? What kind of faith, then, actually saves us? And that's what we're going to see in the text. And so turn our attention there right now, uh, James 2, uh, 14, through to the end of the chapter. I'll read this and pray, and then we'll start knocking out these verses. Here we go. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to show, do you want to be shown, or you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone, and in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works, is dead. Let's pray. Father, I uh, would pray uh, with gratitude again this morning that we have the privilege of holding your word in our hands and hearing it with our ears. And God, I pray that we would see Christ in every word. I pray that we would know the power of Christ I pray that we would experience the presence of Christ in these moments. Father, that you would strengthen us in Christ and challenge our rebellions through Christ. May this a time and, and our response to your word bring glory to the name of Christ. And thank you for hearing this prayer as we pray it through Christ. Amen. Amen. All right. What kind of faith actually saves us? Let's look at this. The faith that saves me, first of all, makes a difference. Faith that saves me makes a difference. And um, 
Hopefully that's obvious to you personally, but I hope you would understand too that not only does your faith make a difference for you, but it makes a difference in the lives of people uh, in your life, people who are around you. In other words, a faith makes an impact on other people. Uh, faith should be something that is not private, though lots of people would claim, oh, I, faith is pri- it's a private thing, but not private, but actually quite a noticeable a faith that is saving faith, is obvious uh, to other people. It works. It demonstrates that is true with evidence uh, throughout the journey that we live for Christ. And we've already kind of unpacked a little bit verse 14, the two principal questions that are driving this passage. Uh, Then in verse 15, he goes into an example, uh, clearly not a hypothetical example, something that was genuinely going on that James knew about and was addressing. He says this, and this is going to help us understand who exactly it is that we're supposed to be uh, making an impact on with this genuine saving faith. Here's what he says. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food. Let's just stop there for a second. Notice that he's talking here about the relationships we have right in uh, the church of Jesus Christ, right here in this family, in the body of Christ. He's not primarily talking about the impact that our faith is going to make outside of the church, But he's addressing believers in the letter, and he's saying to these believers, when one of your fellow believers, a, notice what it says in the text, a brother or sister, when someone who has the same faith that you do, when they're in a very difficult situation, you have a responsibility to act as a demonstration of, a tangible demonstration of your faith. These are fellow believers in the church who have fallen on hard times. This is about caring for people inside this family. And when we do that, we're demonstrating uh, the reality of our saving faith. And we talked a few moments ago in the service about uh, Alex and Amy Ninkovic and their little boy, Luke, and the challenges that they're facing in the Ninkovic family. They're part of this body. Uh, that's a family who's kind of in a top level, uh, category A. This is a big time trial that they're going through. And uh, they need, need, they need us as the body of Christ, as their family, their spiritual family, to care for them right now, to help them through this difficult time. And, um, Uh, Maybe that's the biggest thing that's going on in our church right now, uh, but there's probably a hundred other kind of different categories of challenges that people are facing that we uh, have the obligation as the body of Christ to be helping one another with. And some of those things will be contained to one-on-one relationships, and some of them uh, will be um, met, those needs will be met within a small group or in other different ways that God is working through you to demonstrate your faith, your saving faith is legit. And um, it's being seen in how you care for one another. And um, so this is about care inside the body. And and the question would then come, so is there no way that our faith is expressed outside the church? I think that's a a pretty good question to ask as well. So does this mean we don't have to reach outside? Well, the Apostle Paul actually gives us the answer to that. It gives us some help with prioritizing where help goes. He says this in Galatians 6. Verse 10, you can jot down that reference. Paul says this, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. Who are we supposed to help? Everyone. We're supposed to, as we have opportunity, okay, let us do good to everyone. And then he says this, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. 
And so you get a prioritizing. There's a sense in which, as we have opportunity, anybody can be helped with us. All of that can be a demonstration of our faith. But Paul drives the point, and James is using as an example, the number one way, the high priority way that we're going to care is within the body of Christ. And, and that becomes something that's actually attractive evangelistically to those who are outside the church as we do what we're supposed to do here in building this uncommon community, something that's so different where the love is so radically shown to one another that people outside the church would look in and just go, man, nobody cares for anybody like that. I want in on, on the thing that you have. And the thing that we have, we have because of Christ. And so inside the body of Christ, we're caring for one another. It makes a difference. I think that principle is nice and clear. And as we think about making a tangible difference with our faith, I think two questions come to mind for me uh, that would be helpful for us. What is the primary way? Because let's assume that this person who is hungry and cold is praying to God, saying, God, supply my needs. I'm hungry and I'm cold. They're praying Here's the question. What is the primary way that God provides for believers who are in such desperate need? Point to the answer. Point to the answer. This is the primary way, right? Don't point to the person beside you, okay? The the primary way, if you have genuine saving faith, the primary way that God meets the needs, if you know of somebody who has been unemployed for a little while and and they don't know how they're going to pay their bills, listen, God's not going to send some angel with a money bag and park it outside the house. The miraculous way that God is going to supply to pay bills for someone who's fallen on some hard times is that he's going to give you the money to pay it. That's the way he does it. He's given us each other. And so we need to be watching for these kinds of needs. And then we need to be asking the question, God, do you mean for me? And I'm not saying that every person has to meet every need. That's not even logical. We bear this burden together, but God's going to put some specific needs right in front of you. You're going to go, I'm passionate about that. Or this person's in my small group. I I know those people, or I don't even know them, but God's put it on my heart to help. And um, this is the primary way that God meets the needs. And here's the second question. And I will admit that one's a little bit academic and easy to answer. This next one's a little more provocative. Are there believers in your life who are better off today than they would otherwise be? Because of you. Are there believers in your life who are better off today than they would otherwise be? Because of you. And if you cannot answer yes to that question, then you have no claim on genuine saving faith. That's James's point. It's not my point, it's James's point. Faith without works is dead. That unless you're actually demonstrating that there are people whose needs, their desperate needs, have been covered by you, that their life is different because of what God did through you, then you shouldn't be claiming that you actually belong to Christ. Is your faith active and obvious and making a difference in the lives of other people? and therefore presenting evidence that it's genuine. You see that the person in verse 16, as the example goes on, they completely miss it. 
James goes on to say, you have this brother or sister, they're poorly clothed, they're lacking in daily food. One of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled. Hey, I hope things go better for you, buddy. Hey, I know you've fallen in some hard times. Uh, you, you can just pick yourself up. I'm sure, I'm sure today, t- tomorrow will be better, even though today is hard. God bless you. I'll pray for you. Trust God in his promises. You just go off the other way. I mean, you know what's most startling about this be warmed and filled thing? Is that this person recognized the needs. This person knew that the the one in need was was cold. Knew they were hungry and, and then decided shockingly decides to do nothing about it. Fully acknowledged it to the person's face. Does that bother you? Bothers me. It's alarming. I mean, it's hard to claim that you have the transforming power of Christ in your life. And you're willing to just walk away from that kind of need. He drives his point from verse 14 again in verse 17. He just restates the whole point of this. So also faith by itself, if all you have is faith, if all you have is right belief and a profession that you follow Christ, but nothing flowing out of it. If you have only that faith by itself, if it does not have works, then what you have that's dead lifeless there's there's really nothing there and then in verse 18 he wants to keep making his point so he brings an objector into it someone will say you have faith i have works james responds show me your faith apart from your works and i will show you my faith by my works The objector believes that it could be faith or works. That's a pretty popular view today, by the way. It's a, you're finding your way to God, and I'm finding my way to God, and all ways lead to God. This person thinks that it's quite fine to have a profession, to have a right set of doctrinal beliefs, and that's enough that they don't actually have to work or do anything. Then they're acknowledging you have works. You can go ahead and be a servant and pour yourself out for people, and everybody's just trying to make their way to God. So the thing that we have today where all religions are equal and, and all are kind of just heading on different paths to the same destination, that's not new. It's right here. And James challenges that by stating his point again. And I, just, I just love what he says in verse 18. I will show you my faith by my works. It, it, it has to be both. These are two inseparable parts of the whole. There is no dividing them one way or another or saying that one is sufficient or the other is sufficient on their own. It must, in fact, be both. Now, having said this, and I think we need to understand that it is not in any way that works save us. 
the works do not save us. But that they are, the works are the expression of genuine faith that's already there in the first place. I'm going to come back to this in a moment, but if you just look ahead, I want to address this challenge that we have with the text. Verse 21, we're going to come back to this in a moment. But was not Abraham our father, look at this phrase, justified by works? Verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, when I read that verse, even though we have just read it from what we believe to be the inspired word of God, you read that and that ought to, that ought to cause a little bristling up your spine. Anybody have that? You just kind of go like, I heard that the reformers, those of the Protestant Reformation, Some of them lost their lives over this simple phrase that salvation is by faith alone, through Christ alone. Faith alone. That it is the free gift of God. And so I read James here and I get a little bit, what's going on here? How does this fit with what Paul taught about justification by faith alone in both Romans and the book of Galatians? Well, this is really helpful and it's not complicated to understand what James is saying and what Paul is saying here. But it's simply this. Both are using the word justified just not to refer to the same thing. And in Paul's case, when he says you are justified, saved, declared to be righteous, you do that by faith alone. Paul's talking about that initial time when we make the decision to become a follower of Jesus Christ And then God sees us, places us in heaven, declares us to be righteous. We are cleansed. That's justification. That is by faith alone. James is using the word in a much more comprehensive, ultimate way, where he's saying that your salvation is proven. That's the word we've been using. Justified, proven uh, by not only the initial decision, but by the way that you live your life throughout the journey on this earth. And then ultimately, that is cult culminate it when you are glorified in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so for him, justification takes in all of that. It's the full sweep of salvation. And he says, if you have the initial decision, you are justified when you demonstrate works that make that uh, legit. Um, So hopefully, this will just wrap it up. James was clear to say, the order is absolutely essential here. I will show you my faith pre-existing, I will show you my faith, this is James speaking now, pre-existing by my works which follow and give evidence of the faith. Does that make sense? Clear? Just say clear for me. Because the guy who has to go back over it all again if, if it wasn't. And it's not that we're earning our salvation by works, but that we are showing our faith by our actions. And in the book of James, here's a number of things that he deals with in this letter that speak to this. Works that demonstrate the validity of our faith. He talks about um, holy living. He talks about caring for those on the margins, like orphans and widows. He talks about refusing to show partiality uh, within the body of Christ. We talked about that last week. Showing mercy to the poor in our midst, what we're dealing with here. Humility, being slow to speak. These are all outward works, evidence of a genuine faith that we have. All themes that he addresses in the letter, all proof of saving faith. And I would just hope that your life and your faith in these ways is making a difference in the life of others and in your own life. And if not, you have no claim on saving faith. 
All right? That's number one. Some of you are thinking that's enough. Closing prayer. I got four more. Here we go. Ready? Number two. Faith that saves me also flows from sound teaching. He now goes after their claim to faith, which is really, again, a claim to have right doctrine or belief. And he dials their number and he says this in verse 19. You believe that God is one. You believe that God is one. Now, it's important to understand James is writing very early. It's probably the earliest or the second earliest book in the New Testament that was written. It's being written uh, uh, maybe two decades after the resurrection of Christ. And he's writing primarily, there would not have been at this point a whole lot of Gentile believers, some, but primarily the church at this point was made up of Jewish believers, Jews who had trusted the fact that Jesus Christ really was their Messiah and had come to faith in him. So that's primarily who he's writing to. He's writing to a Jewish audience. And he references here with this one line that we might just look at and not know exactly where it comes from or what it refers to. It just looks like some monotheistic claim concerning God. But you have to understand for, for, for Jews, these were trigger, this was a trigger phrase. That when James said this, he is citing uh, Deuteronomy 6.4, which the Jews call the Shema, which was the creed that they would speak daily and sometimes multiple times a day. This is the first statement, a foundational, indispensable, daily recited, highly cherished creed of the Jewish people. And in saying this creed in Deuteronomy 6, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. For them, this is like the capstone over their entire doctrinal belief system. To say this is to embrace the entire Torah of the Hebrew Scriptures. And so James is going right after them. He's saying to them, you say you believe all of this. You have a profession based on the content of the word of God. You've made this claim concerning God. And then he makes a comment about their creed. When he says this, you do well. You say that God is is one, You you do so well. For a guy who loves sarcasm, these are the verses in Scripture I just love. Because this is dripping, biting sarcasm. Because not for a moment as you're working through the argument do you believe here that James is actually praising them for what they believe. He is not. He's he's stabbing them. He's sucker punching them in this moment. He doesn't believe they're doing well at all. He's not praising their dispassionate, empty theology. But nor is he disparaging the fact that it is good, right theology. It's just that they have the theology, the beliefs, without the actions that go along with it. Now, you'll recall that this series, we've we've called this the No-Nonsense Guide to the Extraordinary Christian Life. And as we think about the word of God and having right theology, believing the right things, it would be so easy when you come to a book like James or the book of Proverbs or Ecclesiastes. These are called wisdom literature in the scriptures. And it would be so easy just to come 
to passages like this and just teach at a very horizontal, moralistic level. In other words, I can teach this material to you in such a way that, that these are just good ideas for right living. You know, you, you have conflicts with people and this is a good way uh, to fix this problem or people have needs and it's good to just love on people and help them. And then when you have a need, they're going to love on you and help you. And, and we could be just very moralistic about this and I could give you six principles for really loving on people and we all go away feeling good about ourselves because we've had a nice little chat about how to live a moral life. That's not the purpose of the word of God. We might be believing these things, uh, but uh, John, James is going after something much greater than that. I mean, this book isn't just wisdom. It's practical wisdom to live here and now that is rooted in our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. That's what the first verse of chapter two says. All the wisdom that James is offering in his letter is grounded in Jesus Christ. James is not, not some, you know, Oprah-esque guru who's just offering tips to a better life. He is, the first verse of the letter says, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he means to preach Christ. He means to go after life transformation, the works that attend to faith, aiming for nothing less with each of our lives, aiming for nothing less than the glory of God. And so the good works that we're talking about here are rooted, they're rooted in sound teaching. We're not making this stuff up. And he snaps at them for their empty theology. He's not done with them yet either. He says, I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one you do well. Even the demons believe. And and shudder. I mean... Talk about the ultimate insult. You think you're so good because you believe the right things? So do the demons. The demons believe the same things that you do. And in fact, they believe those things better than you do. The demons are all better believers than anyone in this room. Pure belief. Even any person in this room, you've been walking with Jesus for 20, 30, 40 years, studying the word of God. You've been diligent in it. You've heard all kinds of sermons. You've read extra books. You've studied these things out. You've learned them well. Uh, Even you, with all of your experience in the word of God, the demon knows more than you. Believes it better. More convinced of it. Take your uh, most famous, prominent theology professor in the greatest seminary ever spent his whole life studying the word of God and locking down his theology. Even that person does not know the theology of the word of God as well as a demon does. It's craziness. Belief isn't enough. The point is that locking down your doctrine, it's not nearly enough. Now check out the demon's response to the right doctrine. They believe it, and verse 19 says, they shudder, literally, they quake with fear in the face of what they know to be true. They know, better than we do, that it's all 
true. Pretty awful, don't you think, when demons are better believers than the believers are? I just thought this would be interesting and helpful, maybe. Um, We're going to put this up on the screen. Ten things that demons believe that a believer ought to believe, too. Did you catch that? Ten things that demons believe that a believer ought to believe, too. Do not even attempt to take notes at this point. Ten things. We will provide these for you on our website. Ready? Number one. Ten things demons believe that a believer ought to believe, too. Number one. God is one and... God is the one and only God and creator of all things. Demons believe that. And they, they know him. I mean, they know him. And they were made by him and know they were made by him. Okay, they got this locked down. Secondly, they know that the Bible is true. Lots of people doubting that. People doubt it. There's not a demon created that doesn't know that this is the word of God. Crazy, right? Number three. The demons believe that demons are liars. It's true, right? We believe demons. We believe the temptations. We follow after their lies, but they know they're liars. Where did we ever get the idea that they would tell the truth? Number four. Demons believe that humanity is God's special creation. God loves people and made them to have a relationship with him. People struggle so much to understand this. But every demon knows it to be true. Number five. See why I told you not to take notes? (laughs) Jesus is God. And he took on human flesh, lived a sinless life, despite their boss's best effort to mess with him. Willingly sacrificed his life on the cross to pay the price for our sin and satisfy the righteous demands of the holy God. Died and was buried, then raised to new life on the third day. Is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Will come again to shut the door on their kind and those who follow them forever. Amen? The demons believe that. Demons also believe, number six, that salvation is really a free gift of God's grace. It really is. They know it's free, though they spend much of their time trying to convince us that we need to work for it. But they know the truth. They're just liars. Reference number three. Number seven. Jesus is the only way, despite what they try to make you believe. He is the only way. That's why they put all their effort And trying to convince us that he isn't. Number eight. They are going to lose. And actually already have. Death is defeated. The grave is empty. Amen? Glory to God for that. The demons know it. They're going to lose. Number nine. Judgment is imminent and unavoidable for them and for all who reject God's offer of salvation. And number ten. Hell is real and eternal. The demons know it. So many Christians today are trying to not believe this last one. In fact, the demons err in only one thing, and it is not in the area of belief. In the area of belief, they are the best believers we know. 
But they err in this. They choose to rebel. They choose to not obey what they know to be true. And so we can say this about demons. They are orthodox, but rebellious. And in that way, a lot of us are like them. We know what's right. We know what's true. We just don't want to do it. And when we have genuine saving faith, the evidence and proof of that is we won't be rebellious. We will obey the Lord. We will give solid evidence that our faith is real. I was having a discussion just about this one little point on my Facebook page. I, I put something up, and then there was some interaction with it. And one of our church planters in our fellowship uh, who's planting coming up in Modesto, California, Scott Bird, he said this on my uh, Facebook page. I often ask myself, the theology of the demons at least makes them shake with fear. What is mine doing for me? In our doctrine, what we believe, our faith, ought to cause us to, to tremble, really, to be in awe of God and result in an active, tangible, evident faith that's changing my life and others. James goes on, back to the refrain, back to the principal point in verse 20. He says this, Do you want to be shown, you foolish person? He's talking about the objector. Do you want to be shown, O oh foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless. That word useless is a play on words in the original language. Excuse me. He says, literally, it's useless. It is, listen to this word now, it is workless. It is workless. W-R-R-K, less. That's the word. And so really what he's saying here is that faith that lacks works doesn't work. Faith that lacks works doesn't work. Or, one other uh, author said, our faith is workless to save us. We must manifest genuine faith and genuine works as an evidence of that. Well, then he goes into a couple of examples, beginning in verse 21. The first example is of Abraham, the patriarch of Israel, and also, a little bit later on, of Rahab, a prostitute from Jericho. And in both of their lives, here's what we're going to see about saving faith next, is saving faith challenges the status quo. This is the way one of our works, some of our works play out. It's by challenging the status quo in our lives. Now, he mentions Abraham and Rahab without really any background information. And again, that makes sense because he's writing to a Jewish audience that would have known all about Abraham and Rahab. And you may be a newer believer, and maybe you don't know those stories very well. And so we'll give you just a little bit of detail so we understand all of this. A little bit that's in our text, and then a little bit extra. But here's the first thing we need to start with. In these two examples, you have two uh, people who could not be described as any more opposite. You have, on the one hand, Abraham, who's a man who's respected, who's a leader, who's wealthy, who gets called out by God to do a very special thing, to be a father of many nations. Uh, so you have a respected man, wealthy, influential. In contrast to that, on the other side, you have Rahab, who James describes as a prostitute, who's a pagan, a Gentile, not part of the covenant community, poor, and plying her trade in an immoral activity. 
So you have two very opposite people. And what I love about that is that between Abraham, male, respected, a wealthy, called by God, part of the covenant community, versus Rahab, woman, immoral, poor, not part of the covenant community. Between those two, everyone in this room fits between. And I love that faith is just that inclusive, that it's available to anyone, that all can apply, that all of us can respond with this faith to our God and King. And so, verses 21 and 22 describe, was not Abraham our father, notice now, that's that phrase we looked at, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar. And you see that faith was active along with his works. We're going to see that in a moment. And faith was completed by his works. He needed to go through this certain test. And, and if you know this story, bear with me for a few moments, for those who don't. But uh, Abraham was an old man. His wife, Sarah, was an old woman, older woman. She was older, not old. Those don't exist. Um, and, and this couple had no children, yet they had received this promise that Abraham would be a great nation. And then miraculously, God allowed them to have a son. Uh, the whole scene was so ridiculous when he was born. Sarah laughed when she found out about the whole thing. And they named Isaac Laughter. That's what his name means. And as the boy grew up, at one point, in order to test Abraham's faith, God actually called him to do something that's pretty outrageous, completely unique, something God would never ask any of us ever to do. One-time event only. Please hear what I just said. But God called Abraham to take his one and only son, the son of promise, up onto a mountainside. He built an altar. He tied his son up and he placed him on the altar. And his intention was to slay his son and sacrifice him to God because that's what God asked him to do. It's outrageous, isn't it? I mean, when you hear the story, and, and I think we, we've heard the story so many times and it's so familiar to us that we can just go, oh, yeah, 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 I remember when Isaac sacrificed or it was going to be sacrificed by his dad. And, and, and we don't understand what it would have been like to be Abraham or to be Isaac, who knew what was going down. Or to be Sarah, that perhaps she figured it out somewhere along the way and, and how awful it would have been for her, for this family that were called by God to do this. And, and I, when you really think about the story and you try to insert yourself into the narrative of it, does it not cause just a little bit of nausea? It's, it's just that disturbing. If you're a father, if you can imagine for a moment, it's sickening. And this is what Abraham had to do. This is what God was calling him to do. And Abraham, this is a test of faith for a man who's being asked to be the patriarch of, of really all of us, all of us who would, who would claim to be believers. Abraham is our father as well. By faith. And that faith needed to be tested. And this was the test. And Abraham was willing to believe, though he was now even much more beyond the childbearing years for he and his wife. He was possessing enough faith to believe that if he put the knife through his son, that God was able to raise him from the dead. That's faith. God stopped his hand, and a ram was provided, and no sacrifice was made. But the test was passed. Abraham had what it took 
Abraham demonstrated by his works, his faith was made legitimate. I look at what I've written here for this point, that, that saving faith challenges the status quo, and I think about the Abraham story, and I realize how ridiculous that phrase sounds. Abraham wasn't being asked to challenge the status quo. He's asking to sl- being asked to slay his son. It's so outrageous, the request. What, what we're being asked to do, whatever it is, is somewhat less than that. Would we agree? Somewhat less outrageous. God is really asking us to challenge at every turn the status quo in our lives. Faith in God should never become so comfortable to us that it is not still stretching us. One of the things I, 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 I fear for us as a church, not, not fear, but just some concern about, is as we look for land and decide to build a facility for our church, and it's been stretching to not have a facility of our own for these 12 and a half years, but that we would someday have a building of our own, and that somehow that would become the thing. That we would somehow become comfortable. That it's easy for us as individual believers and as a church that the more we put years behind us to just kind of settle into a certain groove and to be comfortable with our life the way it is and to stop really challenging ourselves with regard to the mission that God has given to us. With regard to the holiness that he expects from us. And I don't want us ever to become comfortable. We want to build a building that serves the mission of Jesus Christ. We don't want the mission of Jesus Christ to serve the building. So such concern that we would ever get to the place where we're so comfortable that we're not continually looking for ways that God still wants to affect change in our lives. I mean, last time I checked, as awesome as this is right here, Is this not the best place you've been all week long? I hope you believe that, that this is the best place you've been in the last seven days. And that as this draws to a close, you're like, I can't wait to get back here next week. But as great as this is, this is not heaven. Correct? We're not there yet. And until we get there, there's still some things that need to change. There's still some alterations that need to be made in my life. There are things in my life that won't fit in heaven. Is that true for anyone else in the room? You've got things in your life right now that won't fit in heaven. Just raise your hand. I'm going to wait until every hand's up. Okay? All the hands are up. There's things in my life that still need to change. There's stuff I'm still working on. There's stuff that are not consistent with the holiness of God and the presence of God and His, His unapproachable glory. So I still want to be working on those things. I I can't be content with the status quo. For the Christ follower, the status quo should be a no-go. That I'm looking to be transformed day by day. Whereas the world, what, what, what our culture, what our society would say to us about faith is, sometimes we give our society here in Canada, we give it a bit of a bad rap saying that, that our country is anti-religion. And the country is really not. Our value system as Canadians is not anti-religion. We just, we just want you to have your thing and say quiet about it. Status quo religion is good. Comfortable religion is good. You can have your thing, but just don't upset a lot of people with it. That works well. 
It's the crazy people who believe that Jesus is still changing us, who believe that, that we should go get some other people who aren't part of this thing yet, and we should try and bring them to be a part of this. We're the people they don't like. We think everybody should have this, amen? We think everybody should know the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And so we ought to be active in going out there and actually telling people about this. And, well, that's not comfortable. That's, that's challenging the status quo. That's being on mission for him. See, our society doesn't mind what we would call socially accepted expressions of faith. But that's not what Jesus has called us to. That's not what Jesus was about. Some words that I like to use. Jesus was radical. Jesus took risks. Jesus was outrageous. Jesus challenged the status quo. And Jesus called us. Did you hear all that? Jesus called us to be like in all of the same ways. And so, saving faith challenges the status quo. Let's look at this next. A faith that saves me identifies me as God's own. This is what saving faith looks like. I, I know who I am. I know I belong to Him. Notice in verse 23, love this, and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness And he was called, look at this phrase, a friend of God. How awesome is that? To be called a friend of God. The only only time, and I know it's in the scriptures here, the only time I, I, I get crazy about this is when people get too flippant about it and flippant about their relationship with God. Used to work in a Christian bookstore years and years ago, and all that trinkety Christian stuff that we used to sell, we used to call that holy hardware. That was the button on the cash register. Okay, holy hardware. And sometimes it's called Jesus junk. All this stuff that people have, and all this, you know, just products with Jesus on it, and people talking about Jesus in ways that's kind of like buddy buddy, and Jesus is my chum or my pal. And I just can I like I just chafe against that. That just bothers me. All of that stuff just kind of bothers me. It's cheapening of what we have in our God and who he is, who dwells in this awesome glory. And yet I, I see that God is not only transcendent in that way, something I'm trying to capture in my own life, but then I also understand that he's imminent. He's right here with us, and he's so personal and warm and tender. And you see that in this phrase. that Abraham was called a friend, a friend of God. We have all these other titles, Father, Lord, Almighty God. Friend. I want to be a friend of God. I want to have that, that kind of personal relationship. I just talk with the person. Friends are people you, just ch- you talk to about anything. They're people you just hang out with. If you don't even have anything particular to do, you just hang out together. You're friends. I don't need anything to do. Come on over. You don't have anything to do. I don't have anything to do. Let's hang out. That's friends. I just want to hang out with God. I I want his presence to be that imminent. I want to be known in that way. I want God to say, Todd is my friend. We should all want that, don't you think? Of that kind of relationship with him. Abraham had that. How awesome is it? 
That faith that he had confirmed who he was. It secured his place in his relationship with the Lord. Now, why is this so important? Because so many of our struggles, so many of the struggles that people in this room are even going through right now are attached to identity. You just don't live out who you actually are. You don't have a sense of belonging. You don't know that you actually uh, belong to God, that you're a son or daughter of the king, that you, that you can be a friend of God's. There are identity issues. You think about why, why people pursue uh, alcohol or drugs or addictions of all kinds, why people give themselves to immoral sexual relationships, why people are after the pursuit of money. Why people go from one bad relationship to another. All of these pursuits in this world are all about one thing. You're trying to figure out who you are and what will bring you satisfaction. And I'm telling you this morning, it's only Jesus Christ. He's the only one. He wants to be your friend. He wants you to know that you belong to him. No more wandering. No more wondering. Secure in the knowledge that he loves me and I am his. And I know I've said a lot in this message already. It's packed. But for some of you, what I just said in the last minute, that's the thing you needed. You just need to know that you belong to him and his identity is stamped on you if you have saving faith. Finally, this. The faith that saves me aligns me with his purposes. Coming out of the Abraham illustration, he states his point plainly again. He said it in verse 14. He said it in verse 17. He said it in verse 20. He's going to say it again for a fourth time. You begin to get the impression that the readers of this letter are stupid and that he just needs to keep driving his point. And then I remember I'm reading the letter. <laughs> Correct? I'm stupid. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. It's the exact same thing. He just keeps driving the point. A person is justified by works, by their actions, not by faith alone, not by just doctrine and belief. And then he speaks of Rahab, verse 25. And in the same way as Abraham was not Rahab the prostitute, justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. Rahab's living in the city of Jericho. The people in Jericho and the people in the promised land knew that Israel was coming. Remember, they've been out there for 40 years. They didn't have email, but word got there in time. And so Jericho is sitting like right on the border and this mass of humanity called the children of God are on the other side of the Jordan River. They know they're coming. Rahab has heard all of the stories. The people in the promised land are melting in fear, the scripture says, at the face of what God had already done. All of the words, the, the works that God had done, the Red Sea crossing and the provision of manna and all of the miracles that took place. All of that. The way Israel had already conquered peoples on the other side of the Dead Sea, on the other side of the Jordan. Rahab, she's the only one, but somehow in her desperate state as a prostitute, just goes like, well, my life isn't really working out that great. I'm not a prostitute, I'm poor. 
I'm looking at what God is doing, this God of the Israelites, who I don't even really know, and I see the power there, and I'm just going, like, I need a change in my life. That's what Rahab's thinking. I need a change in my life. And I'm just thinking that this God of the Israelites who's doing so much, that's so powerful, I think I'm going to align with them. And, and, and she begins to express this very baby faith in God. Well, God knows that. Presumably she prayed some kind of prayer and said, God of Israel, if you hear this prayer, if there's any way I could kind of hook up with your team and not go down with Jericho, that'd be real great. She prays that prayer. God hears that prayer. Two spies end up. They end up in her house. That's providential. That's the sovereignty of God at work. And they end up in her home. And she harbors these spies. She protects them. She lets them out so they can get back to their people and give the report. And that word confirmed that the faith that she had was genuine. And God saved her. And not only saved her, by the way, she's in the line of the Messiah. Which is pretty awesome in itself. See, God's people were being given the promised land. This was the purpose of God. This was the mission that he was accomplishing. And so Rahab didn't want to stand in opposition to that. In fact, she wanted to be part of God's plan. She wanted to be part of his purposes. Her actions proved a faith that was already there. And listen, for all of us, it's exactly the same. We have a mission. It's not to take a a, a certain land anymore, but it is to go after the souls of men and women. We have a purpose in this life, and it is. Every person is exactly the same, no matter what you do for a living or where you live or where you find yourself every minute of the day, no matter what you do, your purpose in life is to bring glory to God by making disciples and then planting churches as a result, the extended mission. So think about that every minute of the day. Your entire life. It's not, this isn't just a pastor thing that I get how evangelism might be my thing. But no, this is everybody. This is the mandate and mission God gives to all of us. And if your life is anything other than bringing glory to God by the making of disciples, then, according to the scriptures, you have no claim on saving faith. So it's just a very practical way that we can apply this this week. Do you want want something nice and practical and hands-on just this week? Got it? Ready? We have Easter services next week. People are more open at Easter than at any other time of year to come to church. Uh, Many people will say, a high percentage of people will say, I would come to church if someone would invite me. That's all it takes. Now, a lot of people you're going to ask are going to say no, but some of them are going to say yes. And it would be our responsibility together because of the mission that God has given to us to make disciples to ensure that as many people as possible could be here next Sunday to hear uh, the worship, to experience what the church is like, to hear the word of God, the gospel uh, uh, pronounced and proclaimed in their hearing. To see the celebration at the resurrection of Jesus Christ and allow God to do a deep work in their life. Uh, That's what we're to be about, our actions proving that our faith is legit. Verse 26, he closes his argument. And he says again, because he hasn't said it enough, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, there's no body, no physical body living without the spirit of God. The two have to be together. So also faith apart from works is dead. He's saying for a fifth time in this passage, I hope you haven't missed the point Hope you haven't missed it. 
I'm saying the same thing. I hope you haven't missed that faith without works is dead. We all need to know what exactly saving faith looks like in our own lives. And here's the way we're going to close this. I think this is a great opportunity for us to allow some people who maybe in this very moment know that they don't have saving faith. Maybe you've had belief. Maybe you've believed for a long time. But saving faith, as it's been described in the scriptures today, you have not had. And so if you could just set your Bibles aside in your notes and just bow your heads and close your eyes with me, here's what I'm going to ask. I'm going to ask if that's you, you do not have saving faith. You have not trusted in Jesus Christ in this way, though you may have believed. If that's you, and this morning you would like to turn your life over to Jesus Christ, find the forgiveness of sins, become a follower of Christ, have genuine faith, and begin the process of being transformed by God. If that's you, you want to follow him, then I'm just going to ask you to stand where you are right now. And affirm that decision that you want to be a true follower of Christ, a friend of God. Just stand up where you are. One person has stood up already. Is there anybody else that would join them? Is there anyone else who would like to become a follower of Christ? One. A few more have stood. Wait another moment. Another one has stood. Is there somebody else? All right, Father, I pray for these five who have stood up and professed their faith in you. Father, I pray that it would not be simple belief, not just a profession for them, but you would begin changing them even in this instant. God, that they would experience the forgiveness of sins for the first time, that your Holy Spirit would be filling them and confirming the decision that they've made. God, that they would have a very real sense of your presence in their life. God, that you would cleanse them and that flowing out from them would be these works the evidence, the actions of one who truly loves you and believes you. Father, help them to know that they are now a friend of God. Help them to know that their identity is in Jesus Christ. Give them an assurance of their faith from this moment on. We thank you, God, for the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, for the shed blood of our Savior that cleanses us of our sins. We thank you. And we pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for listening. We pray that today's message was encouraging and challenging. For more info about Harvest Bible Chapel, check us out online at harvestberry.ca. Thanks again, and remember, you are loved.